0: This episode of the Birdshot Podcast is presented by Onyx Hunt, Final Rise, and Upland Gun Company. On this episode of the show, we talk to houndsman, bird hunter, and competitive skeet shooter Ron Ausman. Thanks for tuning in to episode number 192. All right, welcome to another episode of the Birdshot Podcast, everybody. Thanks for tuning in this week. Almost October. I'm tempted to say it's in the air, but I really could not in good faith say that because aside from a couple of cool evenings and some frost earlier this week, the woods and weather do not look and or feel very October-like yet. Feeling like a pretty late fall to me at this point. Lots of green out there. Cover is really thick. And it just doesn't quite feel like October yet. But ah, we'll give it a week and see what happens. Anyways, got a fun show coming up for you today. We'll get to that in a moment. But, of course, thank you to Patreon patrons of the Birdshot Podcast. Got a pile of can cooler and sticker packages I got to get out to new patrons this week. Thank you to all new and existing Patreon patrons of the show. They get access to bonus content when that is available. Exclusive discounts for Up Institute, Gumleaf USA. And we've got that drawing coming up at the end of the month in just a day or so for the Sawbuck Brush Pants from First Light. One lucky Patreon contributor will be winning those in just a few days. If you want to contribute to the show above and beyond what you already do by listening, you can check out those benefits at patreon.com forward slash birdshot. All right, keep sending in questions for Justin McGrail. If you didn't catch one of the previous couple episodes that I mentioned that, we're going to hopefully be doing a Q&A episode with Justin in the near future. I've been getting questions submitted by listeners for the past couple of weeks. Want to keep those coming in until we got a good stack of them. And we can then have Justin on to go over those. And I'm requesting bird dog questions, of course, with a hunting focus. Things that you're seeing in the woods, in the field right now. Questions that you have. Scenarios that play out. Things that make you scratch your head. or Just stuff you want to know as it relates to bird dogs hunting season, and hunting upland birds. Justin's done a lot of guiding and a lot of hunting over the years himself, so I imagine he would be able to address most hunting questions as well. So whatever you got, send them my way. Email me at nick at com. Send me a DM on Instagram or anywhere else you can find me, and we will use those on a future episode. All right, I'm going to jump into the show here because I'm packing up this evening, hitting the road tomorrow early, and heading to a friend's girl's camp for my first extended time in the grouse since returning home from my prairie trip. So I am excited for that, and hopefully all of you out there listening are maybe on your way out to the field, the woods, maybe on your way to upland bird camp for the weekend. Somewhere, something upland related, hopefully. So today we're going to talk to a listener of the show, Ron Ausman. He and I have been chatting for the past few months. Really got connected after I last interviewed Dell, and we were talking lots about shotgunning and shooting, and Ron had some thoughts and stuff that he shared with me after that episode, and we've kept in touch since, and I've been picking his brain about reloading and some of the things that I was thinking about leading up to the season, which I don't have much time for right now, but I imagine in the near future when hunting season quiets down once again, not that I'm eager for that time, but I'll be digging into that stuff again and probably picking Ron's brain on a few of these topics And anyways, Ron and I were chatting after my episode last week. I was talking about my Western trip and some shooting struggles, and he was en route to the World Skeet Shooting Championships this week. And I kind of just wound up on the phone with Ron and decided to hit record, and we talked about some of his background in upland hunting and some of the things he does with – he's got some basset hounds. He's done a lot of shotgun shooting over the years, dating back to his time in the Marine Corps. And really, he's got a very well-rounded – skill set and experience and was happy to share some of that with us on the birdshot podcast so i hope you enjoy this one for this week and i will talk to all of you in october that said let's welcome into the conversation and on to the birdshot podcast en route to the skeet world championship ron houseman
1: Podcast. I mean, the the whole uh, talk about your your hunt adventures got me all fired up to to start trying to get out doing more bird hunting. I actually sent a deposit to a place in South Dakota. Oh really? Going to go up first week of uh, November for a few days, and we're going to hunt pheasants and um, probably try to get some ducks. So, uh, according to my friend that I'm going with, that, that that's the options. So we're going to give it uh, about four days, five days.
0: Yep. What's your background in, in bird hunting? I know from our conversations over the past month or so, a couple months, it sounds like obviously you used to do it and I have some of your background, but you've, you've been busy with other things, but now you're thinking about upland hunting again.
1: So I um, grew up in Pen- western Pennsylvania as a kid, uh, you know rabbit hunting with my dad. And you get the occasional rough grouse in the state. You know liberates a lot of pheasants and even back in the early 80s yeah you know the state let a lot of pheasants go um and you know we'd stumble across a woodcock um rough grouse, stuff like that and then you know uh, grew up joined the marine corps and uh spent some time in in virginia at the first part of my career and ended up uh on my Probably on my second tour after I re-enlisted, I did a, a, a year in Okinawa, Japan, and then I ended up in Albany, Georgia, mm. where there's a small logistics base. And if you know anything about Albany, Georgia, that's the quail hunting capital of North America, if you think about it. That's where all of the places like Nilo Plantation and Sina Plantation, mm. yep. they're, they're uh, you know, Nilo was owned by o- Olin Corporation, and Sina was owned by Haynes Corporation. Oh, really? That's just, that's just you know, and Wiregrass Plantation, and, and a lot of little, the smaller ones. So um, I I had uh, started shooting skeet about that time, and I, I uh, met a man that uh, took me under his wing and, and started teaching me about bird dogs. So I, uh, I, I started doing a little bit of quail hunting. A lot of dove hunting some of the most incredible dove shoots you can ever imagine um in north america i mean you know that's not the limits you get when you go down to south america or something like that sure. which i've done but uh really learned uh, a, a lot about bird dogs then i i had didn't get my own yet i was still a bachelor and uh ended up uh my third tour in the marine corps i got uh sent to uh camp lejeune north carolina hmm. And one of the gentlemen I hunted with was a big quail hunter, and that's where I really got to hunt some wild quail. I mean, during the quail season, just about every Saturday, me and my friend uh, and another one of his friends, we would go all on, you know, private land, and they knew where the quail were at and had some incredible wild bird hunts, real, real stuff and, and would run into the occasional um you know woodcock sure but uh that's you know you know from there i ended up getting uh on my fourth tour in the marine corps ended back in albany georgia for a for another three or four years and and reconnected with my my friend that had had taken me under his wing and i ended up buying a, a britney and uh called a Robbie the Wonder Dog. she uh, <laughs> she point back in a tree to 10 months. And I actually got an, uh, asked to professional guide for the Quail Unlimited Celebrity Hunt. And uh, did that for uh, did that one season and uh, worked for one particular plantation for a couple years on and off. I mean, I wasn't a full time guide, obviously. I was still in the Marine Corps, but they would ask me to come out. Hey, can you come? Bring a bring your dog and drive the jeep, and uh, and and take some customers out and hunt some quail. Yeah. So I got to, got the opportunity to do that a lot. Now you know, you, I know your, your your listeners know, liberated birds. I mean. Once you've hunted a wild bird, a liberated bird really isn't.
0: There's there's a clear separation there.
1: Yeah, and and a a lot of people who don't know that. I mean, they go, and a lot of it's a social thing. You know, their company's taking them out quail hunting, and you know, you want to show them a good time. Hopefully, whoever your birds came from had a nice long flight pen, um, and the birds will fly pretty good. Now, you know, and when you liberate a lot of birds. I mean, some of those plantations like Sina and Nilo, they release 20,000, 30,000 birds in a season, you know, and and just by sheer numbers, you know, very high mortality rate for for liberated birds. You get some birds that that stick around. They get with the wild birds. They learn to forage. They learn, they, they, they get, light wings under them, and you. Know, and by the end of the season, you you have a liberated bird that may have survived three or four months. They fly pretty good, and they act like a wild bird should act. Yeah. You know they they hold they they bust the covey'll bust all at once. You know they'll fly uh, appropriately. They just won't. You know. You know sometimes you know bird dogs catch liberated birds, which is kind of like the worst thing that can happen. Right. Yeah. But, but um, over the years, you know I. Uh, I ended up back in Okinawa for a year and then ended my Marine Corps career in in uh, Quantico again. And um, my mom and dad live up in Altoona, Pennsylvania, and I had actually taken my bird dog and they had it. And I would go drive up from Quantico to Altoona on the weekends during the hunting season and hunt liberated pheasants and grouse with Robbie the Wonder Dog and, and did that. You know, uh, a lot. I mean, I, I don't know how many, you know, you got an open day of Pennsylvania small game season and the game commission left who knows how many birds go on some public land. And you get out there and every Tom, Dick, and Harry that's got a hunt license and his granddad shotgun are out there, you know, getting online and, and beating the bush. And, <laughs> I, you know, <laughs> and I don't know how many times Robbie the Wonder Dog, oh, we can't find this pheasant. Uh, one second, please. Hunt dead, Robbie. And these guys thought that was the greatest thing. Yeah. After. Just, yeah you
0: see a dog do like that, that and you're like, wow. <laughs> yeah.
1: Uh, or they go in or she goes in there and points. She does a flash point. So yeah. And then, nah this one's dead. Pick okay. it up. Yeah. So, but, you know, I, I got the, you know, the, the man who taught me about bird dogs, uh, who's, you know, I still have a relationship with, he was, you know, the quintessential South Georgia gentleman. You know uh and he had a bird dog who was a Llewellyn setter by the name of peggy and peggy uh, i mean i get emotional that dog was just the most incredible little dog you could ever imagine you never imagine a dog with that much heart and would hunt i mean he was a professional guide later in his life he i mean he hunted 150 200 days a year and that doggone bird dog went every day i don't i mean she would start September at, like, you know, probably 39, you know, 40 pounds. And, you know, by the time February's rolling around, she's 29. Yeah. And nothing but muscle. And, yeah. and he can't leave her at home. She refuses. You know, nope, I'm in the truck. I'm going <laughs> hunting. And a reason I brought that up, Peggy, and I have pictures of Peggy pointing birds and uh, pointing a dead bird on the ground with a live bird in her mouth. I mean, a dead bird in her mouth and a live bird on the ground. And and I have friends in um, Columbus, Georgia that I do the basset hounds with, and they do more than just basset hounds. They have this, and I mentioned it, it's a cross breed between an English springer, an English Cocker, and a boykin. And this family has been maintaining this breed every so, you know, rotating different blood you know of this breed right, over and over sources, again yeah. for, for 40 years really they have they have the resources to go to england look for a really good english springer go to england look for a really good english cocker go up and they're friends with the boykin family they could go up there and find whatever boykin they wanted to find and they have bred a dog that it's it's kind of like um a Visla. A Visla is a lazy man's bird dog. From what I understand, you buy a Visla, you can almost guarantee, you know, when it's 10, 11 months old, take hunt hunting, it's going to point mm. a bird. Um, you know, again, I took Peggy at about 11 months, and on the first day, she made a 75 yard blind retrieve on a bird that she had flushed. The bird went down behind some trees, really no clue. She had general direction where it went. Went over to brought it back to hand and 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 put it in my hand. Pe- and I named this dog Peggy after the Peggy uh, of my friends. Oh, Peggy, I got gotcha. you. Yeah, that's how we got Peggy. Now Peggy is, is wait
0: is Peggy now, is Peggy one of the dogs out of this kennel? Then
1: yes, they okay. gave, they. And you don't get to buy these things. They are yeah. given to you as gifts. Gotcha. They are. This family doesn't buy and sell dogs. If you are one of the chosen ones you get to get a a, one of these dogs
0: (laughs) so exclusive
1: (laughs) oh very yeah it's really exclusive so peggy (laughs) you know i've seen her do things yeah you know eight weeks old i've already bought her a bumper and was playing with it and i said hey guys check out my new bird dog threw that bumper 25 times and she brought it back every time at at nine weeks old not eight nine weeks every time without with eye hesitation that I'm, i'm going to get the bumper you know and and has a mouth on her. I've never seen her crush a bird. Um, I have a chicken pen, and the, the quail occasionally will get in the chicken pen, and they're stuck in there. And so I put Peggy in the chicken pen, and she goes in there and catches the quail, and I figured it's dead, you know, and she hands it to me, and I picked the, the quail, the, not the quail, I pick the, the dove up, pick the yeah. dove up and said, oh my, this bird's still alive. Throw it up in the air, and the bird flies away. She <laughs> had... The before we had the chickens, she had got into the pen because there was a, a, a dove in there. And I was working on the shop. I had a project going on in the shop. And I'm, I'm working on something. And Peggy comes up and she's bumping my leg. And I'm like, what do you want, Peggy? And I look down. and I'm, What's in your mouth? It was a quail. She went in and got the quail and brought it to me and handed it to me. Here you go. Found one. <laughs> quail was still, I'm not quail. I keep saying quail the dove dove was still alive Picked it up threw it up in the air it flew away so i mean she's really really an incredible dog so
0: how how old is she now
1: she's four she's right this she's a finished dog she's ready to go i mean i i sent you a couple pictures of us sitting out in the backyard and i shot one dove down and she went and brought it back um and you know she's you know i'm gonna duck hunt with her this year i haven't had the opportunity to do that. And, and now that we've established ourselves here in Northern Alabama, we've met enough people that have access to places to hunt. So um, the plan is to take her duck hunting, but um, the family, again, in Georgia, we talk about Peggy and we've taken her hunting together and we've watched her from the Jeep down in, in, in Georgia. And the family um, said, I said, we need to find a nice, male to breed her to, and the family said, you know what, we need to do a, a Boykin, a full-blooded Boykin back into this pedigree, and we know somebody, and uh, I took Peggy down there last February and left him with her for about three weeks, and they had found a really, really nice Boykin male, field trial champion, uh, a st- You know, uh, all of his confirmation. If you know anything about the Boykins, to be a Boykin, you have to go through a number of steps of, on confirmation, on, on health tests. They're really, really picky to say, yep, that is a Boykin.
0: Is a Boykin, I'm like, I mean, I certainly know that name and I've seen Boykins, but I'm not a, I'm definitely not a breed expert uh, like a Craig Koshik or something, but like, is a Boykin, a, a kind of like a middle cross between two more common breeds or like what's, what are the roots of the Boykin? Do you
1: so know? The, the Boykin family bred, this dog and and I know enough of the history to go into it Boykins it's in South Carolina and they needed to breed a dog that was a water dog multi-purpose dog that could do quail could do dove could do ducks but it had to be on the smaller side so not to tip the skiffs over that they duck hunted out of mm. and the boy the Boykin family developed this breed. And there's a very small genetic pool of Boykins in the United States, and, and it, you, there's a you know like all other breeds, there's a, a club that goes with it. Sure. But the Boykins, because the genetics are so narrow, they have to go through hip dysplasia tests. They got there's other you chronic. be Extra careful. To, yeah. Yes. So when you're breeding them, and they won't a, a real Boykin person. If I don't went to a, a real hardcore Boykin person with Peggy, they wouldn't breed to her. They wouldn't, they know not purebred Boykin won't do it. So I had to, you know, my friends have people who understand uh, the, the the importance of genetic diversity because in my breeding, and, and we could probably do a whole episode about talking about right. breeding dogs, because I've been doing bass and hounds, like I mentioned, for about 15 years, and I've always believed in genetic diversity. And that does a lot of you're you're doing a favor to the animal. You're not, you know, the labs of the world now have started to have hip dysplasia real bad. The GSPs, same thing, hip dysplasia. I don't think so much in the setters and the in the, the English pointers. I believe that there's enough diversity there that they're not breeding back into the same thing all the time and, and having those problems, but. Peggy's just a superstar, and we got her bred to this really nice male who was also a superstar, and uh, I got 11 puppies, and they all survived, and again, that's a testament to the breed, and I've bred a lot of litters in the last 15 years, and this was one of the easiest ones I had to do, I mean, I've learned... Uh, you're more of a hindrance than a help when a, when a dog's having puppies. You're there to supervise and watch for distress that something's not going right. But she delivered all 11 of those puppies. She raised all 11 of those puppies. And one of those puppies has already gone to eastern Montana and at six months old, flushed a, flushed a grouse, and retrieve that grouse flushed a Hungarian partridge and retrieved that Hungarian partridge at nice. six months. So I'm actually going to be seeing that friend here in San Antonio here. And okay. uh, we're next, <clears throat> next, uh, next fall, I'm going to meet him up in Eastern Montana and we're going to bring a bunch of brown dogs and go bird hunt. Nice. So, you know, uh, and i'm not going to claim to be an expert on anything i'm, I'm kind of like the jack of all trades and master of none i mean you sure, could put sure. you could put a deer rifle in my hand i know I, i've white-tailed deer hunted uh rabbit hunted uh fox hunted on horseback
0: yeah uh, you got the bassets and the hounds and i have a my bit of, bassets
1: yeah. i mean I, I have i don't even know i always i just pick a number these days it's somewhere between 40 and 50 dogs at my house um when we moved oh, holy here holy
0: cow dogs
1: i guess so when we moved here from uh ohio i mean we already had that many i had to find a house that could host a pack two packs of bass and hounds because i have a pack and my wife has a pack <laughs> um, a, a few bird dogs a couple of beagles a couple of little dogs in the house uh, at the time seven horses uh have a place to train horses and have a kennel because i had built a kennel in ohio and um i ran into a place that the people used to do uh, bird dogs they were field trial bird dog people so they had they had the, the barn with the stalls and the 12 run yeah, yeah. bird dog kennel with the septic system so i have the resources wow. here to have you know 50 dogs and
0: how many, how many bassets does it take to make a pack?
1: So I like, you know, my personal preference, the best size pack to hunt, and I hunt a lot by myself, is what we would call a five-couple. Uh, hound people count, count hounds in pairs. So, wow. uh, and I could recommend a book that you can read. I'll send you some information on it. But yeah, if yeah. you're interested in, and it's written in Old English, it's a really tough read, but if you can get a copy... It talks about how the hunting in Europe and what it, its purpose served more than to produce food on the table. It was it was produced to teach um, royalty how to lead on horseback mm. and how to hunt because militarily wise, if you think about it. I mean, hunting and being in the military and fighting battles is sort of like hunting.
0: Yeah, you could, you could, I could, you know, especially in that time period, I could see, oh, yeah. you know, the parallels and you're not making a huge leap there yeah. to like laying down a skill set, a foundational skill set. That's really That's interesting.
1: Right. So uh, we count them in pairs. Uh, I got, you know, a five couple is a nice size pack to hunt. Um, I have hunted by myself up to 22 hounds with no help. Wow and that's fairly common if you're if you're good at it um, my wife she hunts you know usually with help she doesn't she, she doesn't have uh, she likes to have someone with her which I can understand that I was always really bold. I would you know living in southern Illinois I get off work at two or three in the afternoon and you're so far into the central time zone and even in the winter time it doesn't get dark till 6:30 at night. I could load up my hounds, be at some public hunting in thirty minutes, and hunt for forty-five minutes. Yeah, I mean, there was a season that, yeah. when, when I first first doing this, I hunted hundred and about hundred and twelve days where I counted, I got out for at least an hour and hunted my hounds.
0: Yeah, that's and, a
1: lot. You know, again, the stories I can tell about hunting hounds and running across a pheasant, thinking I had the world's greatest rabbit and ran that pheasant in a circle three or four times. I'm saying, wow, this is acting <laughs> just like a rabbit should. Nice, tight circle running around, And then a, a, a ringneck rooster that had been liberated in this public land, who knows when, takes off. And I get a pack of basset hounds that come to the end of the line and go, where'd it go? I, it flew away. <laughs> it wasn't what we were supposed to be chasing.
0: God, and, and, that's crazy. I mean,
1: we could even, like, talk about scent. You were talking about in, when you were out hunting there uh, a few weeks back,
0: yeah, out west,
1: and, yep. And, and i bet you, and, and if you watch your hounds when they start, or your dogs, you start yeah, yeah. watching those dogs that are holding their head really high. To us, as to me, as a scent person, that's the indication that the scent's rising really fast. Mm. And if they're running with their head up and not down, that means the scent's not holding to the ground; it's rising fast, and Typically, so like, in that like situation, when you say
0: rise, like rising and potentially dissipating,
1: yes, it's dissipating fast. But okay. birds put out a tremendous amount of scent in relation to what a rabbit puts out. Gotcha. Remember, I'm okay. on the rabbit. Yeah, rabbits yep. don't put out uh, you know, one part per million. Of you know, think about it. That that dog has got to sort out one part to hold a line. In the, on the ground because you know they're short. They're you know their head's only eight inches off the ground. If that yep. scent rises above their head, they're done. They can't they can't hold a line.
0: So if a I rabbit mean, is is one part per million, do you have any idea of like a ballpark like what a bird is? It is it like ten times that or
1: you know or you I know? I have no idea. I just okay. know from experience that that they put out more. Uh, oh well, I mean. I, 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 we call it drawing a blank. How many times have you hunted for birds and you stepped on birds and the dog never even indicated that there was a bird there?
0: Right. Yeah, that happens.
1: Yeah. Well, that's because the scent rises so fast that the dog can't smell it. It's gone. I mean, it dissipates so quickly. I mean, there's an old fox hunter. <laughs> it's a fox hunter saying, "Hey, I got a book. It's 400 pages long." It talks all about scent, and somebody says, "Wow, I'd like to see that book." I said, "Yeah, because there's not one thing written on any one of those pages." <laughs> <laughs> scent is—I um, mean, I've gone out and hunted, and said, "Oh, this is gonna suck," but I got to get the dogs out and—or hounds out. And I go out, and for the next two and a half hours, I can't stop them because that they. They just they got it that day. The rabbits yeah. are, are, are putting out a lot of scent, and you can run them. And the, the scent's holding to the ground. It's not up high. And then other days, oh, this is going to be awesome. You go out on a three-hour death march, and you don't even see a rabbit. Or if you do see a rabbit, they run it 25 feet, and it's over, and you don't know what happened to it. So, yeah. I mean, and I've seen that bird hunting where – you know, not so much with liberated birds. I think I don't know what it is. I mean, it, it, mostly because when you're the guy who planted the birds, you got a pretty good idea sure. where it's going to be. And if you're you're a guide, I, I know you plant them in the same doggone spot every time. So you know, if you hunt the same area for a week and you go out on the course and you lay out the birds, you're typically just going to put the five or six coveys you're going to put out you put them all in the same spot because you want to find them again you know i've right. seen bird dogs just run over to a spot point because they know oh, yeah i've yeah oh, i've seen that yeah you liberated a, yeah you've liberated and they're pointed to the right and the birds are actually to the left yeah because they they know well they were pointing this is where they, find they
0: know them it's in, the in there somewhere yeah, yeah 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 so
1: but you know that that's just one thing i mean talking about bird dogs and you know you know i was looking at the upland bird Com- uh, gun company uh website i wanted to i hadn't heard of these guns before uh. and i'll be talking to some of my friends out in, in texas when i get there about them but uh you know guns i just you know i'm still i hunt with uh auto either a pump or an auto loader i got i got a, a eureka a391 it's five and a quarter pounds i bought it about 15 years ago, right before I went to Uruguay, and I bought a Beretta 39.01, uh, again, in 20 gauge. It has a, a little bit longer barrel, and I took it to Uruguay and I hunted e and, and pigeons. And I bought the Berettas because they're reliable, you can run a lot of ammunition, through them, and the parts on those two guns are sort of interchangeable. If you know, certain things break, you can kind of swap out so you're not going to be out of the hunt if something breaks when you're when you're on. So, right, right. Um...
0: Gearing up for your next hunt? Check out Ugly Dog Hunting Company for all your dog supply needs. Ugly Dog Hunting carries a full line of products for your bird dog and even some for you. Whether you're looking for dog collars, GPS tracking devices, kennels, beds, leads, training equipment, or first aid supplies, Ugly Dog Hunting carries it and a whole lot more. New owner of the company and friend of the Bird Shop podcast, Mike Nadusky, loves to remind me that while I do hunt with pretty dogs, every dog can be an ugly dog. Check out the entire selection of gear for you and your bird dog at UglyDogHunting.com. For many Upland hunters, along with their passion for dogs, birds, and the places we chase them, comes a passion for shotguns. Upland Gun Company specializes in customizing shotguns for the Upland bird hunter imported from Italy and shipped direct to an FFL near you. Select from one of their side-by-side or over-under shotgun platforms and customize the fit, function, and aesthetics to your liking. Design and build your next Upland hunting shotgun with Upland Gun Company today. Visit UplandGunCompany.com. We're going to talk about guns. I want to talk about some of your skeet shooting and stuff. But before we leave that, like obviously we could do a whole podcast on the hounds and, and I haven't spent a lot of time around hounds people. And in, in that topic, I mean, i I guess I know a little bit just like from the outside looking in, but um, like, what is the, I'm sure there's a bunch of interesting parallels in sort of the way that, that hound hunters would look at scenting and game and all that stuff versus how I do as a bird hunter. If what's your ideal day, you're like you talked about a day where you're going to cut the dogs loose and you're – what is the day that gets you excited? What are the conditions like that you think we're going to nail it today? The scenting's going to be awesome.
1: Yeah, there's certain – you know, and I'm not, I've never been – there's some people that say, you know, you get a south an east wind and you're not going to get any scent. What I like to see really?
0: is – What's the yeah. – you know what the thinking is behind that?
1: No, I mean it, it's a lot of – talking to the professionals and the, the – actually, you know, there's people in this country, they're paid – Professional fox hunters. That's their job. And, um, you know, I've kind of, I don't know if I've just insulated myself from it. I've always gone to what's my favorite type of day. Mm-hmm. Just the day, like you said. I'd like to see a low overcast yeah. with no rain, um, pretty good humidity. I don't want it real dry. Uh, a little bit of breeze. I don't want it to be a dead, dead mm-hmm. calm day. I want a little bit of breeze because you want the breeze to, if the the birds are there. You want that scent to blow around a little bit or the right. rabbits are there. You want that yeah. scent to blow around a little bit, you know, that would be for me to see, you know, because then, you know, no, uh, the sun's not out. You're not going to, your dog's not going to get hot even in the winter time.
0: Yeah. Everything's kind of more consistent temperature yeah. wise. You don't yeah. have those stark contrasts between shady areas and sunny areas. Yeah. No, that sounds like a, like a good hunting day to me.
1: And I'll tell you dissipated light. I mean, you can wear a lighter colored set of, you know, I wear shooting glasses. Uh, you know, I can wear a, a lighter yellow, a lighter orange. Uh, you know, and again, you're not, you could you could be looking right at a, a grouse and not see it. You know, it's invisible. Um, I can sometimes pick a rabbit out sitting because her eye is so big. That's what you look for. You look for sure. the eye, yep. Yep. you can see it. Um, but, um, you know, that would be my day. You know, a, a nice uh, overcast day, a little bit of breeze, not super high humidity, probably, you know, 60, 65%. And I'm sure there's wind conditions that are better than others, but, sure. you know, like I said, scent is what it is. You, you just don't know. It's one of those, it, it, and again, I think a, a bird puts out a tremendous amount of scent, especially when you think about it, they've been sitting in that spot for, Hours. for sure yeah yeah and, and and if there's and if they're a cubby bird you know think about that i mean if there's a, a cubby of quail and there's 30 birds in that cubby yeah if they're and, milling and,
0: around and putting scent on the ground uh, in a big area or yeah
1: have you seen a cubby sitting a real wild cubby sitting before it bust? um
0: Where you can look
1: down and actually see the
0: cubby i feel like i might have seen like may have seen a video of that at some point but but not really i'm not really sure
1: yeah, I've seen that, where, you know, hunting inside Georgia, we got on, on a, a really cool morning for down there, and the dogs had pointed, and I was hunting with a friend of mine, Joe, who's a was on the uh, Olympic team, great clay target shooter, mm. and we, we were hunting on the base in Albany, and Joe Joe said, oh, man, there's a you should see this, and we kind of looked over, and we could see it. It looked like it was like five birds all stacked in on top of each other. Pointing outwards in a little circle.
0: Okay, yeah, so that's kinda of what I was picturing in my head and maybe yeah, I've seen so, a drawing of so the we, or something. we
1: and, and it was it was so cold, I just think they didn't even though the dog was standing there, they hadn't they figured, Well, if we don't move, we'll be okay. Right. Well, we busted the cubby. I think there was 30 freaking birds in the cubby. Jeez. They, they went everywhere. But when you looked at it, it didn't even look like there was that. It was just stacked on top wow, of each other. Wow,
0: that's interesting.
1: So, uh, and, and Joe, I think I knocked one down and Joe didn't hit any. I said, dude, man, you're international ski shooter. Why didn't you kill one? He said, I was not thinking 30 birds.
0: Awestruck.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, I've been Hey, it can, know, it
0: can I, happen to the best of them. That, oh, that makes yeah, me feel better. No, he,
1: yeah, he's still i mean he lives out in montana and i stay in touch with him and you know he's already been out the last couple of weeks you know sure. busting busting the woods with his son and, and shooting some grouse that
0: uh yeah oh man there, there's a there's so many questions i could i could ask about the the hound stuff but again we've got uh we've got other topics i want to hit on and you are en route to was that the skeet world championship that you're heading to
1: yeah yep san antonio texas the the World Ski Championships. It starts Thursday. There's a prelim event, 200 targets that I'm not going to shoot in. It's 50 of each gauge, 12, 20, 28, 410. Um, Friday is the first event of the what they call the the mini World Championships. It's a five five gun shoot. Uh, this year, uh, the Junior World Championships got uh, canceled. Um, we won't go into that. It's um, something to do with some new laws that were passed in California and, and kids and shooting. Oh, so man. all the kids are going to be at the uh, shoot this weekend. So for their for the kid championship, so it's going to hold like two shoots at one time. So they'll probably be, be between six fifty and seven fifty people shooting this weekend. Wow! And we'll shoot the five guns and then on Monday you we say start, five
0: guns. You mean all five gauges?
1: Well, four gauges and doubles. So the, the fifth gun you sh- is a doubles event where you shoot doubles at all set, seven, states.
0: 12, 20, 28, four, 10, 4, 10, and, 10
1: and doubles
0: and doubles. Okay. What's the doubles again?
1: So doubles is just shooting, uh, in a regular American skeet, you shoot singles and doubles and, uh, But years and years and years ago. Oh, yeah, single high,
0: single low, and then you shoot the pair. Oh, then a
1: pair on one and same on two. Okay. Well, years and years and years ago, um, like American Trap, you have singles trap, 16-yard line, doubles trap where they throw two targets from the 16-yard line, and then the handicap where you move back. So American Uh, Skeet decided, hey, you know, we should have this doubles thing. It would be another event. People like to shoot it. Um and uh, it really came into being, and I could a little quick history about it, in 1983 or 84, at the end of the 12-gauge event, they had to have a shoot-off. Well, back then, it was you shot another round of skeet until you missed. That year, the shoot-off won 54 boxes. So two guys by the name of uh, Wayne Mays, who was quite possibly the greatest clay target shooter that ever lived, and Phil Murray— Another one of the greatest target shooters that ever lived decided that hey, we need to start shooting doubles at three, four and five because that'll weed it out. We we can't be here for another three days
0: yeah. shooting speed.
1: It just it's <laughs> it's counterproductive. <laughs> so uh, they that's when they said, Okay, we're gonna start shooting stations three, four, and five doubles until we miss. And you start at station three, you shoot the higher high bird first then the low bird, go to station four, shoot the high bird first, then the low, go to station five, shoot the low bird first, then the high bird, then you go back to four, and you shoot the low bird first.
0: Oh, reverse.
1: And and reverse it, and you do that. So then they said, well, why don't we just have a whole event where we shoot from station one to seven doubles? And um, shooting that, most people shoot the 12-gauge. Some people shoot a 20 or 28. But I equate shooting doubles to like shooting the four ten. I mean there's the amount of perfect scores shot is about equivalent. So mm. two years ago at the World Championships was the first time a ninety nine had ever won the doubles event because the wind was blowing forty five miles an hour that day. All day.
0: So you're saying so you're saying normally it's normally it wins with a hundred? Normally oh, it's yeah, a perfect score.
1: Okay. Yeah, prob- I, I bet you'll be Depending and looking at the weather, it looks like it's going to be pretty nice. Um, the, the main doubles championship will probably be between seven and twelve hundred straights shot and then they'll have a shoot off at the end of it. 410 probably be about the same between seven and twelve. I mean, out of, you know, when you have six hundred fifty, seven hundred shooters there, I mean, the the last ten years because of the tremendous increase in prices and how much it costs to shoot
0: yeah
1: uh, i've noticed that the number of th- the competition isn't quite as keen as it once was uh back in smaller the when pool. i smaller smaller pool people not practicing as much yeah um, people getting out of the game that were really good shooters that really can't afford to do it anymore because it's so expensive man, man. Um, last year in the 410 I believe there's probably between 7 7 and 800 straights in the 410 but in the 12 gauge there'll be a, a lot of they, they shoot 150 targets in the 12 gauge and they will probably be, be 50 60 70 perfect scores. You awesome. know, yeah. And and they and then the shoot off and typically what they do is uh, in the 150 event you know that could go three or four boxes before they weed it down to the the guy who wins. So it's it's still really competitive, you know. You got to shoot a hundred to to win the main events. Uh, the overall they have an overall event of a, a four fifty or five hundred in the mini and a five fifty in the in the main, where they count you know all five fifty targets. And and you know somebody might shoot a four a five forty eight out of five fifty. You know that's quite possible. Yeah. Um, uh, if they you know shooting all the all the guns, you know, they'll probably be a four fifty out of four fifty, quite possibly. Um there's been a lot of those shot over the years. I mean it's it's pretty competitive. I mean it's yeah.
0: is this event that you're going like is this something you have to qualify or is it an open entry or
1: it, it's open. Um okay. I've gone you know, when I was on active duty in the Marine Corps I shot on the team so the the Marine Corps paid for me to represent the Marine Corps at this event. Um hmm. The history of Skeet is quite interesting. So, um, the human brain is quite possibly the world's greatest targeting computer. Yeah. I mean, if you think about it, 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 it it's Vif- pretty uh, damn good. Yep. So, 75 years ago during World War II, they, 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 to teach aerial gunners in Navy ships and in Army aircraft, they actually hook them to the skeet range and the trap range. And that's That's where you learn how to shoot skeet. learn how, and they took it to another level. They actually would put them in the back of a pickup truck and drive around a track that had clay target houses all over. And they would randomly throw clay targets out while you're moving in a moving vehicle. So not only are you moving, the target's moving. So you're learning how to shoot that, 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 um, uh, that target.
0: Um, yeah, they're, they're got, programming the computer.
1: That's programming the computer. I mean, they used Winchester Model 12s with what was called a cuts compensator. Uh, yeah. They were quite popular. Um, when I was stationed at Camp Lejeune, I got to meet a man by the name of uh, Jack Parks. And Jack Parks was quite possibly one of the greatest Marine Corps rifle and pistol shooters ever to live. And, but he is also an incredible clay target shot. And Jack, uh, I got to learn a lot about the history of, of how he um, ended up being a, an instructor teaching Marines how to shoot aerial gunnery. And uh, really interesting story. Jack Parks was um, on Midway Island at the start of World War II, and he was a fifty caliber armorer. For 50 caliber machine guns, Whoa. and uh, three days before the war started, he and a crew flew down to Wake Island, and uh, and serviced. Oh wait, no, he was in Wake. He was in Wake. Flew up to Midway to service machine guns, and they were on the flight line at Midway getting ready to go back to Wake, and they got a radio call from Wake said hey, we're being overrun. Don't come back. So Jack then trans transited across to back home to the United States, got home to Texas because he hadn't been home in a year and came down with malaria and got stuck in a military hospital for a couple months until he recovered from malaria. And he showed back up in San Diego and he was wanted for for desertion. Jeez. And, uh, and uh, when he showed him, well, I was in the hospital club recovering from malaria, and they looked at it and said, okay, you're now Warren Officer Parks and you're going to teach aerial gunnery. And that's how he started teaching, because he was a good skeet shooter at the time. Yeah, he yeah. knew it. <laughs> and he went and uh, taught, uh, for a, most of World War II, he taught aerial gunnery. And mm. uh, if you, there, there used to be huge military championships uh, for clay target shooting i mean if you go back and think when you were a kid if you went out to the local gun club think about how many old vet, uh world war ii vets grand right. vets were out there shooting their model 12 and you know that's they that's where they learned how to shoot they learned yeah. how to shoot in the military um uh you know interesting fact you ever hear of robert stack the actor
0: uh yes i'm pretty LMS, sure yes
1: the untouchable he was the 1938 or 39 world champion 20-gauge shooter in ski.
0: <laughs>
1: and when he, he's in the ski Shooting Hall of Fame, um, I got to meet Robert Stack out in California. I was out there shooting. And, and, yeah, and he was at the gun club I was at. But Robert Stack uh, was in the Navy, and he taught aerial gunnery. They, that when he got recruited into the Navy, yep, you're going to teach aerial gunnery because you're already uh, we know you can shoot. That was what he did. Pretty cool thing.
0: So So when you started shooting skeet, like was it pretty much did you get hooked on it or what was the how did you get so head over heels about it?
1: Well, I I took up skeet shooting so I could learn how to shoot more pigeons and doves and whales.
0: Okay, yeah. yeah. Because
1: that's you know, that's what the game was designed to do was the the guys that were learning how to shoot uh, wanted to keep up, well, quail hunters wanted to keep up their, 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 uh, shooting in the off season. Yeah. And it kind of evolved from there. I mean, trap shooting wasn't the same Trap's been around much longer than skeet and it, it's a different game. I mean, and I've shot both of them. I'm a, you know, I've shot the grand American uh, a number of times at trap um, done pretty good at it. Uh, I was a much, I'm all, uh, a much better skeet shooter. I am a trap shooter, but I can hold my own. Um, I like playing with sporting clays. I mean, it's it's not something I do often, but it's it's a good. Uh, it helps you look at you know instead of the standard. Yeah, these are the eight stations I'm going to shoot, and these are the presentations I'm going to get.
0: More variety.
1: Shooters. Yeah, sport and clays is going to give you more of that realistic feel for it. I mean, honestly, I think trap is probably better for a flush bird than what skeet is. Uh, skeet's more of a passing bird game. You know, a couple of the shots are, or maybe what a uh,
0: right what you when you're at bird, one a, and one, one and seven, seven, seven. basically. Yeah, Yeah.
1: Yeah, maybe eight. You get a bird that flushes up and straight at you. Uh,
0: I knew this. This was on the tip of my tongue and I knew I kind of knew this but I did I googled it to double check. Well, this is on Wikipedia but William Harndon Foster was one of the founders who's a you know yes. famed famed author of New England grouse shooting, one of the you know kind of the historical grouse hunting figures. Yeah, he was involved in inventing skeet shooting. So yeah, and I always knew that like it was invented by bird hunters for bird hunters. So that's Yep that's the application really. And obviously it's been adapted somewhat, you know, in the competition era and stuff, but obviously basic principles still there. I, so you run, you've shot a hundred thousand registered targets and gosh knows how much, how many more you've shot unregistered than that. Like, like what do you still get out when you go line up and go shoot around to skeet? I mean, what do you get out of it? What, what makes you keep doing it
1: for me? Um, I've always been a competitor. I mean, I've competed. I mean, I've com- competed in archery. When I archery, I was an archery hunter for many years. I love shooting a bow. Competed in that, doing the field, the field archery, and then the three D stuff. And then when I found skeet, I started doing that. I mean, there was a time in my life I was a ten handicap golfer. I mean, I could. I love. Nice. And I, I, I didn't. You know, for me. The five or six guys I played with, we weren't going out to the golf course just to play. We were all playing for a quarter a hole. I mean, that's yeah. it wasn't, there had to be something to compete with. I still, I don't typically go, to, if I go to the range for enjoyment purposes to shoot skeet, I don't take my off target shotgun. I don't sure. take my Beretta target shotgun. I take one of my whale guns, my bird guns, my duck guns and i go there with the mindset i'm doing this for fun i still yeah. love breaking a clay target i mean yeah. it just and it could be a trap target could i've shot some sporting clays this year a little bit again and and but you know mostly skeet you know my season starts about april and wraps up here in october um i'm gonna probably shoot a little bit more over the winter this year that i haven't done in, in past years um uh, just because I want to keep my game a little bit better because I'm going to do some bird hunting. But it's just one of those things, and it's the people. I mean, I'm going to this shoot to shoot with my old two-man team partner, Russ. I mean, when we were young staff sergeants at Camp Lejeune, and I'd really started taking up the game, and Russ was a junior shooter. He started shooting back in the 70s when he was a kid. His dad is in the Hall of Fame for teaching people how to shoot skeet. Hmm. Um Every Saturday morning, when I was at Camp Lejeune, was a practice morning. And there's three or four or five Marines that I shot with, and it was a skeet competition even on Saturday mornings. Yeah. Who's going to be the top dog today? I mean, <laughs> and it's a you know it's a lifelong relationship you meet, but you know these are your friends. These are what you've hung out with, especially when you're the Marine. It's it's a it, you're in the club.
0: Yeah, the camaraderie for sure. What little clay shooting I've done in comparison, I mean the thrill of the thrill of breaking a clay target is still uh, it's, it's very satisfying. I can at least relate to that.
1: And especially when you get on a run where you're you've broke two or three hundred straight, and you're just you're right in the middle of them. And you know, so that
0: that's, I, that's 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 the other thing I always wonder too is like if you go out and you you know, obviously you've shot 25 straight a lot. So if you've, if you miss one halfway through, what, what do you do? You just keep shooting, you power through it.
1: Oh yeah. You miss, well, at, you know, and I'm not at the level I was when I retired from the Marine Corps, um, but I'm still can shoot at a pretty high level. So, um, it, you know, it's a mental thing. I mean, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I could talk more about the mental side of it and things that I believe in and you know, it even applies to when i do the bird dogs or the bassets or i i'm riding a horse i mean i even when you're out bird hunt if you think about it think about how many birds you've shot that you didn't even think about it you just did right yeah If if you thought about it how many birds when you thought about it you didn't you didn't um, you didn't
0: kill because right. you thought about it. right it's you have instinctive a, yeah yep. and that's what we learn in an interesting way we learn by doing and then some level of conscious thought around what you're doing and, you know, analyzing what you're doing is, I don't know if necessary is the right word, but it's a part of it. But then we're talking about these activities that are, you know, they're subconscious, they're instinctive. So you're, you you got to turn the computer off while you're actually performing the activities. But I mean, what are those things that you think have translated, you know, like when you are out bird hunting, is there anything going through your mind shooting wise that, that you're thinking about or not, I'm not saying when the bird gets up, but I mean, like what are the things that you'd say to prepare yourself?
1: So, and I, and I'm going to, I talked about Todd Bender, um, who I'm going to yeah. talk to and we're going to let him really talk about the mental management side of it because he's an expert, but I, you have two people that live inside your body. You have a conscious mind. You have the unconscious mind. Mm-hmm. The conscious mind can only do one thing at a time. He's your worst enemy your unconscious mind can do about a million things at once so when i'm shooting at a clay target i'm not thinking about breaking it i'm just doing it i've done it so many times my brain right. knows you've greased the groove yeah that's right and the, and as long as i can keep that conscious mind at bay he's my worst enemy and it it takes a it takes a lot of discipline and understanding you know think you know, Outcome is is ninety percent of of a thought. If you if you think about not doing something, you know, I, let's think about I'm oh I'm going to miss this target, and then you say pull. Almost ninety nine percent of time, that target's already gone before you pull said pull and pull the trigger. You're not going to hit it. Right. Uh, I go. I have a routine. Um, I write about it. I have a little journal that I started keeping again this last season I've I've really assessed why I've been struggling for several years. on not shooting the scores I once did. Um, and it, it, and listen to some things that Todd teaches reading the books by Lanny Basham about mental management and, and Lanny's a, a, who Todd will obviously talk a lot about because he just finished his, his annual clinic there in, in Dallas with Lanny. But, um, you got to, you know, when you're out bird hunting, I mean, you're out there relaxed. You should be, this is your, this is what you enjoy to do. And, you know, when that bird dog goes in for the point, you're walking in to, to, to flush a bird. Just think about, the, you just don't think about it. Yeah. Look yeah. at the bird, pull the trigger, follow through, shoot with your legs, don't shoot with your arms, drive through the bird and guarantee that he's, it's going to fold. I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's same with a clay target. It's a, when you've shot and I can, you know, recorded a hundred thousand skeet targets, another almost 30,000 trap targets. Mm. Cause I did shoot a lot of trap when I lived out in the St. Louis area because there wasn't as much ski. It was a lot, it was a lot easier on a weekend to run up, you know, within a hundred miles in any direction. I could find a trap shoot, but not a skeet shoot. Yeah. But the whole uh, in your mind's eye that computer when the computer says pull the trigger pull the trigger the target's probably gonna break you know uh, I don't have 2015 vision that I had when I was a young man I'm it corrected I do but I can remember seeing uh, the target spinning when it came out of the house. Mm. Um, I can still occasionally, under the right light conditions, see the shot go break the target. I mean, it's subsonic; it's only like 1,200 feet per second. So, you, when you're focused in on that target at 16 yards—that's what a typical ski target is—you've yeah. got your vision focused at 16 yards, and I, you, and everything just comes into focus. If you think about it, when you're really hunting good, you could actually see the wad probably go up. Mm-hmm. and, and then, or, and if you're hunting a bird, you know, you, you see it all, it's there. Your brain has seen it unconsciously, but your conscious mind can't do that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That, the visual focus obviously being a key component there. And then, and that's, that's one of those things where I would, I would imagine you're at a, you're at a way higher level of sort of training that folk- Like, I don't know much about, it. I've read a little bit about Focus, and I think you can kind of hone and and train your focus to be, you know, more acute and and better than say somebody who is just starting out. But that's one of those things where you when you bird gets up, it flushes, you shoot, and then when you're kind of putting the pieces together. As you're sort of reflecting on it, sometimes you're like, "Oh yeah, I had that clear snapshot. you know I can see the bird's head and eye and beak and everything, or no, actually it was kind of just a blur you know and and the latter is the one you you probably missed, right
1: yeah, I mean I can you know example you know of it Don in Albany, and my friend Jimmy, the guy I mentor I talked about, called me to hey, and he called me Rambo hey Rambo I." Can't, We've been putting quail out for the last three days, and it's rained every every day. By the time the hunters showed up, so I got this covey of quail. It's got about seventy birds in it right now. Can you come out and bring 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 uh, Robbie and and come shoot some of these birds for me? I need to get some to give to the customers. So he kind of told me where they were at, and I, I I had my got my gun and my vest on, and I started. I took uh, Robbie out there. And I came up this peanut field that had been picked. And I'm looking at the peanut field. I said, there's something wrong with that peanut field. Why is it moving? And then it, <laughs> the dog goes on point. And at that moment, about 75 quail come up in front of me. <laughs> I picked out three cockbirds with my 1,100 and killed three cockbirds dead. Jeez. And I visually remember picking passing up hens and shooting cockbirds because i could see their heads yeah and poor robbie the wonder dog <laughs> was a little bit because there's three three quail fluttering on the ground right in the trail and she couldn't figure out which one to pick up first
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh man <laughs>
1: but you know that's you know it's one of the things like you said you see the eyes you see the yeah the, the, the head of the bird i mean like it, it kind of like you know if i could pick a bird that i would want to just go hunt and I plan on doing it next year as a Hungarian partridge. I think I've hunted them enough to have a lot of respect for that bird Yeah. and how leery they are. And I mean, you can shoot one or two in a hunt and you that's like going, you know, Western Pennsylvania grouse hunting on the side of a mountain. I mean, those guys talk about, I got 17 flushes today. Well, how many you kill? Well, I didn't kill any, but I had right. 17 flushes. Yeah. better day. <laughs> <You> no. <know? laughs> yeah and and that was that was called success i mean i i I tell you you know i could go right on the back of it or drive the jeep and have two bird dogs on the ground and have just as much fun not shoot just watching it right watching the dogs work and making sure they're 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 doing their job and making sure the people around the jeep are having a good time and and talking to them about the shooting part and you know the whole the whole experience right um, and you know, uh, maybe another time we'll talk about heat exchange and hunting deer with dogs, rabbits with dogs. What the what happens with the animal and all that other stuff? But you know, there's some real, really just amazing times. It's like I, I think it was, we talked before last week about hunting southern Illinois, and I know I'm running a rabbit, and suddenly the 14 facets I have all go in 14. Different directions, and a covey of quail breaks.
0: Yeah, apart. yeah, yeah. That was I. I couldn't get that visual out of my mind when you're telling me like you got the pack of hounds chasing, and then all of a sudden they start a lot, you know, fan and line out, and then you get a covey of bob whites up.
1: Yeah, and, and you know that and those weren't liberated; those were wild birds. Right, there was, right. Uh, it, Illinois, there's tens of thousands of uh, acres of public land that for training purposes it's kind of difficult to get in there and actually hunt the birds um, because it, it most of them were for field trials but um, I had uh, 2,000 acres about 20 minutes from my house, to another thousand acres about 30 minutes and uh, they were bird dog bird dog beagle basset training areas and I could go out there you know for the from the beginning of hunting season to the end of March in Dogs as much as I want, and you end up getting some really good dogs when you, when you can get, uh, or, or I should be calling them hounds. My foxhound people, no, Ron, they're hounds, you know better than that. They're not they're, <laughs> there's they're bird not dogs, and there's, not, hounds. <laughs> there's hounds. There's hounds, there's yeah. hounds. I mean, there's, there's <laughs> the dogs are the boys, and the bitches are the girls. And you know, <laughs> it was up to me. I'd have a bitch pack of about 14, and that's what I'd hunt with because I prefer a female. I've had good males, don't get me wrong, but I would prefer a female over a male any day of the week. Yeah. Uh, just, And I got, some nice, I got some nice males right now. I mean, I even went over to England and imported a basset hound myself about three years ago. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's the, my genetic diversity that I'm using to get some more hot crosses in my breeding program. Mm-hmm. I'm asked to go drive right by the National Bird Dog Museum oh, really? <laughs> on this trip. Yeah, I've been there. And, and Nick, you need – if you ever get the chance to go on a trip, you need to go down there to Tennessee to the National Bird Dog Museum and spend a day there. That is the most incredible place for what we do and what we love. And that's where they hold the national championship every year on the plantation there. Oh, that's the Ames. Um, Yep. It is absolutely – to see the guns – and the dogs and the and you know the you know in in the in the curators there and i got to go i just showed up you know i was on one of these trips and i saw the sign and i said well well, i need to go check this out and i had peggy with me she was riding with me and (laughs) peggy got to run around the bird dog museum and and uh and and they have uh you know from the melons and the carnegies who were all big outdoorsmen you know their guns uh Bronzes of their do- of their dogs, uh, mm-hmm. full dior- di- uh, stuffed dogs flushing quail. You know that's oh, one geez. of these famous bird dogs that you know. Mm-hmm. It, it's in a glass case, yeah, and it actually yeah. sat in the Carnegie Museum in Pittsburgh for many years. Wow. Uh, so uh, it just got, they they have some of the old quail hunting carts in there. You know where the where they had the mules pulling the cart and the bird dogs on there, and the hunters would ride on the cart. And you know, in South Georgia, it, you know the the gentleman's way to, to bird hunt.
0: Oh, that's that is cool. I gotta I gotta put that um I've heard a little bit about it, tidbits, but it's definitely if I was if I was in the area, it sounds like a place I, I could kill some time. That's for sure. Oh yeah, uh, if
1: you're gonna you know, take the family somewhere, and you're gonna go to the south for something. Hey, we're just gonna go through here for yeah yeah just a
0: slight I, I bet my my older son hunter he probably would like he would like that all the bird dogs and shotguns
1: <laughs> oh, no no and, and just the history behind it because they have the retrievers right. hall of fame in there the bird dog hall of fame so it's, it's multiple cool. things there so there anything else you want to talk about
0: no man we uh we touched a lot of we topics there Just
1: timer says an hour and 36 <laughs> minutes doing yeah. pretty good yeah
0: yeah yeah exactly we uh we could have done a deeper dive on the reloading part, and maybe we'll do that um, in a follow-up episode at some point. Because you sent me a little list, and I've been asking you some questions about it, and probably have more questions to ask you. But we'll, like I said, we'll do that on another time. But this has been a lot of fun. I know you got you're going to be doing a lot of shooting this week, so I wish you the best of luck in that, and want to thank you for joining us on the on the Birdshot podcast, Ron.
1: I, I, I'm really, really happy to have stumbled across. I have no idea it showed up in my feed. And that very <laughs> first show when you had the gun fitter on there, I'm kind of like someone who knows. That's, I mean, it was kind of, and I'm like checking off the boxes as he's, yep, that's exactly how you do it. That's how I was <laughs> taught to do that. Yep, talking about the loads, talking about the pattern board. You've got some really good people that you know. That gun fit. I mean, it's 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 so important that you got a gun that fits right.
0: If yeah. it doesn't
1: fit right, you're I mean you can you can struggle your way through it. Right. You might be kind of successful, but having a gun that fits and that you're confident with is going to make your your everything so much more pleasant. And, and again, I could go follow a bird dog for 8 hours and never pull up one time and have just as much fun. Yeah. It just this, the shooting and taking the bird is secondary to the, the experience of being in the field, watching a dog work, watching the birds flush, and you know just taking it all in.
0: Yeah, I think many people many people would agree with that, but. The network that I has has sort of built up around the Birdshot podcast has definitely been a, it's been a lot of fun and a huge benefit for me and you're part of it now, Ron. So I, I do appreciate it and I appreciate you sharing all your thoughts and insights here on the show. And like I said, we covered a lot of things on this episode and we could we could continue, but we'll wrap this one up. You hang on the phone here for a second, Ron. But thanks for joining us on the Birdshot podcast. This was a blast, man.
1: Thank you. Anytime.
0: Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Birdshot Podcast presented by Onyx Hunt, Final Rise, and Upland Gun Company. Don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, and share. And if you really love the show and want to contribute above and beyond what you already do by listening, you can sign up at patreon.com forward slash Birdshot. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you on the next episode of the Birdshot Podcast.